Good morning, Antioch. It is good to be with you in your homes this morning, though we still so miss being with you here physically in the church as the body of Christ, worshiping with one another. And I pray that you are doing well. We pray for you often, and we are doing our best to reach out and to hear what God is doing in your lives, where there might be needs or things that we can pray for. And so we genuinely do lift you up and intercede on your behalf regularly. And on these mornings, we want to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to you, over you, to ourselves, over even this space, this atmosphere, because this is still the season of Eastertide. Traditionally, the historic church celebrates Easter not on a day, but beginning on a day for a season much in the way that we do with Advent and then Christmastide. And then from Easter until Pentecost, there is a season called Eastertide. And today is the fourth Sunday of Eastertide, which also traditionally is called Good Shepherd Sunday. And each of the three years that the lectionary gives us texts, there is a passage in all three years from John chapter 10, which is the chapter where Jesus talks much about the gate and the sheep and being a shepherd and the activity of the shepherd. And so today we are going to begin with that passage and then we're gonna jump into one or two other passages that reference Jesus as the shepherd. And we're gonna look at and celebrate that Jesus is not just an ideal of a good shepherd, but that Jesus himself came and still is our resurrected good shepherd. So we're gonna look at today a little bit of what that means for us, what that meant for them at the time of hearing these original proclamations, what this meant for the first readers of the gospels, and then now, what does this mean for us? How can we participate and allow Jesus to be our good shepherd, to shepherd us? And then what role does this give to us as pastors and as lay people, as lay ministers, to shepherd and to care for one another. So let's pray and then we will jump into the text together. Lord, we thank you that your spirit is with us, in us, through us, working, that you are always at work, even when we can't see it, as the song says that we sing so often, you are still working. So Lord, I pray for every person and every family that watches this intentionally or even maybe some unintentionally stumbling across this watching. I pray that you would be at work in their hearts and in their lives and that even if they can't see it, that they would come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and learn to trust him and to trust you, to trust the Father. God, I pray that you would grace my words this morning and that as I read scripture and elaborate and speak what I sense, that you uh, are giving to us through your words, I pray that it would touch our lives in a meaningful way and that it would renew hope in us this Easter season. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Well, church, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hopefully uh, it's ingrained in us enough by now. Like I said, at this juncture, we're still in the book of John, and we're going to talk today about one of the great I am statements. So the book of John is a peculiar gospel. Um, it is by far the most theological. It has a strong theological agenda. 
the ordering of John's gospel is, most scholars believe, the least chronological. That John is not necessarily writing the stories in order that they happened, but that he's putting stories next together, putting, putting stories beside one another to make points. He's trying to speak, as it says at the end of the book of John, so that, this is his thesis statement, so that we readers would come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. So John is ordering his whole gospel with this agenda, and he tells us at the end, well, there are seven I am statements that Jesus records, or that John records Jesus saying throughout the gospel. And two of those are in this chapter. One of them is, I am the gate, or some versions say, I am the doorway for the sheep. And the other is that I am the good shepherd. So before we read the passage, we're going to read this passage from John 10, verses 1 through 10, if you want to get your Bible and go ahead and turn there. But I'm going to set up the context here, because I have heard and always understood this passage in what I have come to understand as an improper context. doesn't mean that everything I ever heard preached about this is wrong. That's certainly not true. And even if it were, the Lord was certainly at work. But I think that the more we can situate this in its proper context, the better we will understand. So this comes directly, 9 comes before 10. I know, this is, this is not Sesame Street. But 9 and 10 are really attached. There is no break in scene. There is no change in audience between John chapter 9 and John chapter 10. And so John chapter 10, especially Jesus' monologue, the discourse, which is really poetic. It's, it's not Jesus just talking. It's Jesus talking in a very poetic way on purpose, making multiple points, but one point in particular, and that is John's point, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, what happens in John chapter 9? This is the story that is recorded in a few of the Gospels where Jesus heals the blind man, the man who was born blind. And in some of the other Gospel stories, this discourse is a little bit longer, but this is the story where Jesus spits in the mud, has the man put it on his eyes, or uh, puts it on his eyes, has him go wash in the pool of Siloam, and then the man leaves and testifies to Jesus. So the first people are the neighbors. It says that the neighbors in his town, they, they see and they can't figure out and they can't believe really. They sense that this is the man who was just yesterday blind, but they can't believe that it was. So they ask him, who are you? Is this you and what happened? And he testifies faithfully. This man came, spit in the mud, put it on my eyes, asked me to wash in the pool of Siloam, and now I'm healed. Well, this happens then. They bring him. They're, they're frustrated. They're infuriated because they already have their agenda against Jesus, which we've talked about numerous times over the past few weeks. So then they bring him to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees drill him for almost, I don't know, 15 verses or so. And he testifies faithfully to Jesus time and time again. And one of the interesting things about this passage that I want to come back to in just a moment is that they even call on his parents and they say, we know this is our son, 9 uh, verse 20, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see or how or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. For his parents said this because they were already afraid of the Jewish leaders who had decided that anyone who acknowledged Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. 
So he's already, the, the way that the Pharisees are engaging and the way that they've so influenced the community have already set this man and his family, his parents, somewhat at odds over the work of Jesus. Even just the work of Jesus that had just happened because they knew the Pharisees' agenda. So then moving along, the Pharisees end up putting him out of the synagogue. And then in the next passage, Jesus goes and finds the man and reveals himself as the Messiah. So the man knew that Jesus was someone special. He calls him a prophet. Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of God? And, and then essentially reveals himself to this man, bringing him into salvation, bringing him into the kingdom of God. And one of the great ironies in this passage is that the Pharisees throw him out. They kick him out of the synagogue, which is the place of worship. It is the place that is supposed to lead them to Christ. But then Jesus goes and finds him. So Jesus, once he is kicked out of the place of worship, brings the place of worship back to the man. And I think so often Jesus has done this with all of us. But this is not the message I am preaching this morning. This is all just setting it up. So then we come to John chapter 10. So it's the same audience. The Pharisees are there. Probably many of the neighbors, this is a, a largely Jewish community here. And so let's read John chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. So Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. And then, of course, the famous verse here coming up. They will come in and go out and find pasture. For the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So what is happening here? Well, John uses metaphor throughout his gospel to provide distinction between oftentimes Jesus or the kingdom of God and someone or something else. One of the things we have to be careful to not do is to provide a one-to-one -one correlation between something in the metaphor and something in reality for all of the items in the metaphor. Okay, well, is there a distinction between the thieves and the bandits or the thieves and the robbers? And well, if Jesus is the door, then who and what is the pasture? And okay, all of these are peripheral questions that probably the Pharisees were, were trying to figure out that are not pertinent. What is pertinent is the distinction and the point that Jesus is trying to get across, where he is distinguishing himself from the Pharisees. So the Pharisees were supposed to be the shepherds of Israel. This is why in the previous chapter, when the blind man is healed, the neighbors, after interrogating the blind man now healed, bring him to the Pharisees because they are the ones that are generally, uh, typically, they're the ones that are discerning and judging and trying to discern, well, what do we do with this man now? How does this change his place in society? 
What do we do with the man, Jesus, who brought this man his healing? So they bring him to what are supposed to be the shepherds of Israel, and they throw the man out of the community. So Jesus is distinguishing himself from these kinds of shepherds that he calls thieves and robbers. He calls them illegitimate shepherds. So what do we do with this? I think one of the things we have to do with this is look at exactly how this reveals Jesus. That this is less about how bad the Pharisees are and how we might be looking for bad shepherds today and more how we can identify Jesus as the good shepherd. So what are some of the things that Jesus does here? Well, it says in verse 9 that they will come in and go out and find pasture. Then in the next verse, he says, I have come that they may have life. And here, we also have to be careful that we don't immediately think afterlife, that we don't think heaven and hell. That's not at all the point that Jesus or John, the author, is trying to get across. He's trying to get across living life freely, peacefully in the kingdom of God now. That the sheep, when they, are, when they come in through the gate, that there is protection and provision. This is what it seems that Jesus is saying about the way that he leads and what he leads his people into. He leads them into pasture. He leads them into pasture where they are guarded, where they are protected, where they are provided for. Jesus is also the good shepherd who calls his sheep by name and who goes before them, as it says early in this passage. He goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow because they know his voice. So what's most important about this passage is what it says about Jesus, not what it says about the thieves and robbers and the Pharisees. So what are some of the takeaways here? Let's look a little more closely at what kind of shepherd Jesus is. Number one, Jesus is the gate who defines and preserves the community. This gate is not about keeping sheep out. Matter of fact, later in this passage, I believe in verse 16, Jesus says, actually, I have other sheep that are not yet in the pasture that I am bringing into the pasture. So this is not about the sheep at all. This is not about heaven and hell, who's in, who's out, inclusion versus exclusion. And when we make it about that, we do the same thing that the Pharisees did. They're the ones who were trying to judge and determine for Jesus and for this man, whether they were in or out, they're good or bad. And they ultimately threw this man out and then they kill Jesus a few chapters down the road here. So this is about Jesus being the gate who defines and preserves the community because the gate defines the boundaries of safe pasture. So when we come in through the gate, we find safe pasture for all that is within the realm that the gate leads us into. This is number one. Number two, Jesus, the good shepherd, comes for the sake of the sheep. He's not there as a thief or a robber, but the good shepherd is there. And as Jesus will state a little later in this chapter, we know he is the good shepherd because he will lay his life down for the sheep. Also later in this chapter, he calls the other shepherds, the illegitimate shepherds, hirelings. Well, what do we know about a hireling? A hireling is there for the, for the paycheck. Uh, a hireling is there maybe for the prestige that it gives them to do this job or for the authority that they have over people, or in this case, the sheep in the metaphor. The hireling is not there for the truest good of the sheep. But we know that Jesus, the good shepherd, came 
for nothing more out of obedience to the Father. And that flowed from the Father's love for the sheep. We read this in John 3.16. He so loved the world that he sent his Son. And Jesus followed the, uh, the commands of his Father out of concern for the sheep. So we know this as well. He leads the sheep into flourishing, even when it is costly. Costly to the point of costing him his own life. And third, we, the church, the community, need to shepherd one another in the way that Jesus shepherded us. Now, there's multiple layers here. So Jesus is the only good shepherd, capital G, capital S. Jesus did what only he could do, and he is the only gate. We, there are no other gates. We are not the gates. But there are those of us that Jesus has called to be pastors, to care for the sheep. And we have to care for the sheep in the manner that Jesus cares for us. But then, even down another level, we are all cares for one another. As we looked at, I believe, on Good Friday, where on the cross, Jesus looks at John and Mary and says, this is your son, this is your mother. That Jesus, on the cross, doesn't leave us alone, but establishes a community where we take responsibility and care for one another. So how should we care for one another? Well, Paul tells us a ton of how to care for one another in the epistles. But here I think Jesus is showing us an example of himself as the good shepherd that we are to follow. That we are not to follow as hirelings. That we are not to follow for selfish gain. We're not to care about people insofar as it impacts and affects us. We're not to care about people in ways that are manipulative, in ways that ultimately I scratch your back if you scratch mine. That's not the way the kingdom of God works. That's not the way the pasture that we enter into through the gate of Jesus works. That is not the culture of the kingdom because that is not the culture of the king who is also the good shepherd. To be clear, we are not Jesus. We cannot be the good shepherd. We are not called to be the good shepherd. We are called to continue the work of the Good Shepherd in the way that the Good Shepherd modeled for us. So I want us to look at another passage that reveals some of how Jesus is the Good Shepherd in caring for his sheep. And this is a passage from 1 Peter chapter 2 that the lectionary also gives us for today. And it brings in shepherd and sheep language at the end. But this is one of my favorite passages because I think it speaks to us about the way that Jesus operated on the cross a little more articulate than, articulately than we get from just reading the story. It gives us some hidden information here where Peter has an agenda, it seems, that he is revealing to us. So let's read from 1 Peter 2. We're going to read verses 19 through 25. And this comes on the heels of Peter talking about slaves and masters. I want to acknowledge that, but also acknowledge that for the sake of this conversation, for this sermon, we're not going to address that. That would be its own, it needs its own setup, it needs its own context and, and all of that. But I will highlight some of the things that I think we really can take away from Jesus as the Good Shepherd. Verse 19, For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering, because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, 
because Christ suffered for you. This is one of my favorite verses. Leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. That is also the key phrase. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So this is a passage where it talks about quite literally Jesus as an example for us to follow. Once again, we are not to go to a literal cross. And even if we did, even if we were martyred in that way, it wouldn't do the same thing that Jesus did on the cross. That is a finished work. But it shows us and gives us a little bit of insight into how Jesus was operating and some of his character that is moving forward. So one of the things I think is so interesting here is that Peter just assumes that suffering is going to happen. That Peter, Peter doesn't say if suffering happens, but he assumes it's going to happen. And he doesn't at all treat suffering as a good thing, but he does allude to the fact that we can endure suffering in a way where God's good can be revealed from it. So I want to, I want to be very clear in what I am not saying. I am not saying God brings us suffering to do something that he couldn't do otherwise. That's not what I'm saying, and that's not what Peter's saying. But what he is saying is that how we bear suffering, how we endure suffering, how we walk through suffering, makes way for the work of God to be made manifest in us and in the lives of those around us, which is exactly what happens with Jesus on the cross. So he endured unjust suffering from, if we use our metaphor, from John chapter 10, from both the sheep and from thieves and robbers. So Jesus was ultimately crucified by the sheep from the Jews. And ultimately, the Jews got that agenda from what the Pharisees, who were called thieves and robbers, put forth. I think one of the messages to us is that if we're going to live faithfully as sheep together and learn to care for one another under the great care of the Good Shepherd as shepherds, then we will be wounded. We will wound one another, sometimes intentionally, but most of the time probably unintentionally. And the way that we handle that means everything because it allows space for the character of God, the transformation of God to be at work in us and those around us. The author, like I said, assumes that we will suffer. But let's be clear, suffering itself is never good. It is, there is nothing noble about suffering itself but we can endure it and bear it in a way that is good. Next it says that no deceit was found in his mouth. But what was found in his mouth? Mercy and forgiveness. Even on the cross, when he is being insulted, Jesus doesn't retaliate. He doesn't avenge himself. He doesn't vindicate himself. He utters the words of intercession, Father, forgive them, for they don't even know what they're doing. And I think this is so true of the way that we live together with one another is that we're often wounding each other unaware, that we really don't know the way that our words, the way that our actions, the way that we think we're standing up for ourselves is really wounding one another. 
And Jesus, in that moment, doesn't choose to vindicate himself. He utters words of forgiveness and mercy. And then lastly, Jesus entrusted himself to God for the sake of the sheep. And I think that ultimately this is what is most important. Because suffering is not inherently good, we have to entrust ourselves to the God who can do something in and with our suffering. This is what makes the whole gospel story such a good story, is that when we did the worst to Jesus, and on Holy Saturday, he is resting dead in a tomb, God vindicates him by raising him from the dead. And we ultimately believe that the same will happen for us. That even when things are utterly and completely out of our control, and death is the most extreme example of that, where we can control nothing, God is still at work in those situations. When we are wounded, we are not to take things into our own hands, but we are to entrust those people and those situations to God to vindicate us and to work something ultimately that will be good and beautiful. This is one of the things that we can mean when uh, I believe it is Isaiah says that God brings beauty from ashes. I've thought about that a lot. And I think that one of the things he means is ashes have been exhausted of all resource. That there's seemingly nothing left to do with ashes. That there is nothing valuable, there is no resource in them. And there will be times in our lives when we feel like situations or maybe even ourselves are like that. But God is the God who can bring life out of death. Not just things that are on their last, on the deathbed and on their last breath, but actual death. Jesus was vindicated. He entrusted himself to God. So for us, we entrust our present and our future to a God who is presently alive and on the other side of death. And church, that is why we have hope. Because Jesus is the good shepherd who is now alive on the other side of death. He's not just an ideal. This is not just an image, a metaphor. Jesus is the one who leads us into pasture, as this says. So why did Jesus do this? Let's go to the end of this passage in closing. A few things. Verse 25, ultimately it was out of love for the Father and for the sake of the sheep. Jesus did this for the sake of, of the sheep, that we might return to the shepherd and receive healing and live in righteousness, as it says in verse 25. For we, like sheep, were going astray, but now we have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. The way that Jesus suffered brought healing to us. And when we choose to follow in his footsteps and in his example, it brings healing not only to us, but to those around us. When we choose to not retaliate, to not find deceit in our mouths, but to entrust our lives and our situations to the God who judges justly, the only one who can do anything about it, the only one who is on the other side of death having defeated it. When we do that, we create space, we allow God's life, his healing to flow from us to other people. So in conclusion here, I just want to remind us of a few things. Number one, that Jesus is the good shepherd, that he is shepherding us, 
that he is leading us, when things look bleak around us, which right now for many they do, that Jesus is at work, that Jesus is protecting and providing and leading us to a place. Yes, we will go through suffering. Peter assumes that. Jesus walked through suffering. But this can be good news because we serve the God who brings life from death. And also, because Jesus is raised from the dead, we now can shepherd at the way that he shepherded us. So now we have a model, we have an example, and we have the life of God within us, empowering us to be able to do the same.